And this morning we're continuing in the letter to the church in the city of Philippi, Philippians 2, and we'll read verses 12 through 18. And as we read, and as we dig into our passage this morning, young Christians and young theologians, I want you to see if you can answer what's the difference between light and darkness. You could answer that on your own, but in the Bible, what's the difference between light and darkness? And for the rest of us, sometimes it's easy to lose our place as we're reading through letters. But remember the church in the city of Philippi and who made up the membership of that church. If you think back to Acts chapter 16, there is Lydia, the wealthy merchant, small business owner, large business owner. Then there's the Philippian jailer. And then there is the slave girl, clairvoyant, who handles spiritual snakes. And she drove Lydia crazy in Bible studies. All the weird things she said. It it was a very different group of people. They were not set to get along well. But they had to. That's the group of people that Paul is addressing as the church as he's writing this letter to his loved ones. This is the good news of Jesus. It makes us one mind and one heart in spite of ourselves. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. That's all we ask this morning, Lord Jesus, is that you make our hearts glad and make us able to rejoice. Too often we're glad and rejoicing in the wrong things, in the idols that we build and gather around us to soothe our hearts and our hurts and wounds. We pray instead that you would open the good news in your word to us again this morning and that you would show us that we're to rejoice and be glad in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lift our hearts by your love, your atonement, your forgiveness, your renewal, and allow us to hold fast to this word of life. And for all this, we'll give you thanks. We ask it in the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. And would you be seated? could make the case that it isn't as necessary for the church in our world to do what Paul is calling for in these verses. And what Paul is calling for in these verses could be boiled down to verses 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling and questioning and complaining. Not really necessary. Nice, but we wouldn't have to do that if we didn't want to. Be blameless. Be innocent toward one another. 
Again, not crucial. Be done with the spirit of division and suspicion, the spirit of accusation and bickering. Not entirely necessary for us. In a very real way, we could argue that these aren't necessary in the church. But only, only if we will also make the case that light, in verse 15, isn't necessary in the world. We don't at all take seriously Paul's exhortation at the end of verse 12, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. By the way, that is not your individual salvation you are to work out. It's not singular, it's plural. Work out your shared salvation in the gospel. Live toward one another, live with one another. The gospel in Jesus Christ, which you have believed, because, verse 13, it's God working in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. In other words... Together, work out what God has worked in you. But look, let's be brutally honest about this. If it doesn't work out for you in a particular church, there are a dozen others right around the corner, ready and happy to receive you until that church doesn't do things in just your way. And in that case, you can leave again and there are at least 11 more for you to try on for size. Until they disappoint you. You can nick off endlessly to church after church after church. So practically, you don't have to work out anything with anybody. But in Paul's church, Paul's world rather, there was only one church in, in any city. So... You had to kill your pride. And you had to die to your demands and your entitlements. And you had to submit under the gospel with others instead of demanding that all those others be submitted to you. Or there was no church. It didn't exist. So I would say to you, we don't have to work out our salvation together with fear because we give up on the gospel at the first sign of trouble. As soon as things get rough, we just abandon it altogether. We don't have to work out our salvation with trembling because, let's face it, it's just hard. We could make that argument, but only if we can say with a straight face, it's just not important for light to shine in darkness. We can only make the argument, if we can say without hesitating, that darkness is just fine as the rule of life and light is not needed. Which is the plot of the 1965 Peter Schaeffer play, Black Comedy. Schaeffer is one of those playwrights who really seems to understand the human heart and he can parade it endlessly across the stage. Schaefer's the one who wrote Equus about a stable boy who worships horses, but he disfigures them. He wrote Amadeus about Salieri's jealousy of Mozart's gifts. Black comedy is about a party thrown in a London flat in pitch dark because of a power outage in the building. 
And for the entire play, the audience watches the players grope around in the darkness as the confusion builds. But what makes the play interesting is not just that it's set in the dark, but the main character, a struggling artist, turns out to be a liar. He's lying to his fiance. He's lying to his fiance's father. He lies to his neighbors. He's lying to a rich art collector who's come to see the young artist's work. And actually, the main character has a reason to keep all of his guests in the dark for the duration of the play, to keep them from discovering his web of lies. And so, deliberately, he can't find candles to light and set about the place. Purposefully, he misplaces flashlights, so he has none to pass around to his guests. And when other characters try to ignite lighters for just a flicker of sight, he warns of a fictional gas leak in the flat. So if we're happy with that version of life, it's a, if it's a party in the dark that we're after, it's best to keep the lights off so no one can see who we are and what we're truly up to. And if that's the case, Paul's exhortations can just be dismissed. What if, what if throwing the lights on is necessary? What if light has deep meaning? Throughout scripture, our God ministers to his people with light. In the creation story, the thick oceanic dark that would stifle all life and beauty and glory is broken when God throws light into the inky nothing. And from there, darkness would be a persistent bullying problem. But God knows how to harass contrary powers and he enjoys it. He harassed the darkness of idolatry by ironically snuffing out the sun in the sky one day when his people were being brought out of slavery in Egypt. It makes perfect sense because Pharaoh claimed to be the descendant of Ra, the sun god. And God was saying that the light was his. Light was his nature. It was his heart and his character, not Pharaoh's. And so to prove it, he took the sun away. To harass the darkness of lostness and unbelief, he puts a messianic prophecy in the mouth of Isaiah. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And that great light, which was salvation for God's people, burned in the simplicity and the crudeness of a manger. The power of darkness was being mocked in the fragility of an infant. To harass the impenetrable darkness of judgment and death, the blackout of Golgotha became the endless morning of the resurrection. And then, in the opening chapter of the book of Revelation, the risen glorified Jesus harasses the dark pride and rejection of human hearts with his church, pictured as a lampstand, a candelabra, fully lit, with Jesus keeping the flame, making it shine bright with his gospel. We could try to say that light isn't important, but clearly we would be in disagreement with God on that point. 
Theologically, it's important to say that light doesn't produce itself. It didn't turn up on its own. It exists because God called it forth. And then God assigns stars and suns and moons and planets and an incarnate Savior and a church to be the custodians of His light, the bearers of it, the leash holders of light. But that order is vitally important. Light first, then luminaries. In our denomination, there's all kinds of discussion going on right now about differing views of how God created all things. And I commonly hear a worn-out objection. No scientist worth his or her salt believes in that order. He couldn't possibly have created light first and then luminaries. To which I can only say, no theologian worth his or her salt could believe any order otherwise. Because by the end of the book of Revelation in the new Jerusalem, the glorified city in the new heavens and the new earth, it's day all the time. There is never nightfall. And there's no sun, no yellow dwarf in close orbit to give off warmth and light. It's just Jesus in the perfection of his love and his truth and his grace seated on his throne. And he's the light of the place. He lights up the new city and the new heavens and the new earth. Light is the character the attribute, the quality of the Savior. And he can give off his light through anything he chooses. And according to Paul, he's chosen you in verse 15. And that should take your breath away. I remember standing in the streets of Savannah, Georgia in 1996 as the Olympic torch passed through our city on its way to light the cauldron in Atlanta for the summer games. And a woman came trotting up with a few other runners alongside her and a small motorcade of patrolmen escorting them. And she jogged, but just barely. And she held the torch out to her side, but it wasn't really held aloft. And as she approached, another runner and his entourage stepped out into the street. And this runner was clearly well into middle age. And he positioned himself to receive the handoff. And when the torch was passed, he didn't exactly take off. He sort of just shuffled along. It was the tortoise passing the flame to another tortoise. And it was not the vision of Olympic prowess and glory I had hoped for. Not exactly stirring. I was wanting to see speed and elegance and form. I wanted to see something closer to the Greek marathoner carrying the summons for assembly with dignity and strength. And a group of us were standing around in the street as the torch was slowly fading out of sight on its way to the next athletically challenged torchbearer. And we were wondering together, what do you have to do to get nominated to carry the torch for a leg of this relay. And while we were debating what we had heard, a group of college students came running by, far more sleek and spry, and they'd taken matters into their own hands because they carried a toilet plunger turned upside down with a wad of paper flaming in the rubber cup 
cheering themselves on. And everybody else cheered for them too. They looked better at it, but as they passed by, the paper burned out and their celebration kind of fizzled with it. It was closer to the spirit of the thing, but it was still a disappointment. God has chosen that His light that shatters darkness should shine in you and out of you. And it has nothing to do with your ability to carry the light with strength and elegance and form. And it has everything to do with God's ability to give off His light pure, dazzlingly bright and white hot in you. Because all of the darkness in you, the native darkness of your unbelieving, God-rejecting heart was at the cross and in the cross and on the cross. Your darkness was there. It was the midday midnight of Golgotha. Your darkness was mocking Jesus. Your darkness was slurring him. Your darkness was smearing him, pulling him apart limb from limb. And even more than that, Jesus didn't just suffer your darkness, he married it. Jesus became all of your darkness, stretched out on the cross, hanging there and dying there. But Jesus was also light incarnate. Light in person, according to John's gospel. Light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not know it. The darkness couldn't recognize it. Didn't matter, though. He still shone as light in the darkness for the darkness. It's the mystery of mysteries. Jesus was made pitch darkness on the cross, and still from the beams he burned as the light of the world. He flickered as saving truth until the very end in agony, in pain, in rejection. He never recanted his nature as the light of salvation and grace. And he went all the way over into darkness when his breath left him. And his pulse stopped dead in its tracks. And his platelets stacked up on one another and vascular gridlock, and his limbs went heavy like lumber, and the tomb closed over him. Three days, his body was all darkness. And then he rekindled himself. He reignited himself, and he came out of the tomb like a midnight sun, burning and blazing and undimming. And the light that floods from the open tomb is supposed to pour out of you, Paul says. The darkness is slipping. It's going from heavy and thick and dense in your heart, in your mouth, in your pursuits, in your activities, to gray and grainy, to shades and patches with bright bursts of Jesus' own light and character shining through. Our native darkness begins to feel foreign and out of place and unwelcome and evicted when Jesus makes his light resident in us. And it all makes perfect theological gospel sense. The nature of light is to spread itself, to want more of itself. Friday morning I was sitting in a coffee shop trying to pull all of this together. Somebody walked up to my table and introduced himself, reintroduced himself. 
and I asked him to sit down. He was a pastor from our presbytery, but it had been a while since I'd seen him. We were going to have our presbytery meeting that night. Presbytery is a gathering of all the pastors in our denomination in a region. And he had to stand before all of the other pastors and confess his sin. And he knew it was coming. He was going to be suspended from office for two years for his sin. Not able to pastor for a while. And he told me his story and he had a lot of sin to confess. And I just listened and put my hand on his shoulder and told him the gospel as best I could tell him. And he said, I'm worn out with confessing. I've confessed to so many people in so many different places. But the funny thing is, in all my confessing, I've never been judged. And more than half the time, if you can believe it, more than half the time I confess these sins to others, they confess the same sins back to me. It's remarkable. I don't understand it. Oh, I understand it. They've been burying those sins and stifling them, and the darkness has been eating them alive. And then light is cast upon them, and the light breaks through. Light throws off more of itself. Light chases darkness away, not the other way around. I've been slowly piecing my way through a documentary called The Long Way Down. Ewan McGregor, the actor, and a childhood friend are riding motorcycles from the northern tip of Scotland through the African continent down to Cape Town, South Africa. And yes, the natural result of my watching this documentary is I must have a motorcycle and ride it through some ridiculous geography. But that's not the point of what I'm telling you. (laughs) Riding motorbikes through Africa is fraught with danger, but one of the hot spots that the team was particularly concerned about was Libya. It turned out to be an uneventful crossing through that country. But as they were passing through, there were huge paintings, billboards of Muammar Gaddafi pre-assassination, smiling and waving and looking stately. If you've ever been through a dictatorship or a military state, or seen film footage from the inside, one of the common tactics for the dictator, the supreme high commander, is to spread his or her presence with portraits and statues set up everywhere you look. You are always under the gaze and the rule of the dictator. See, true to its nature, darkness tries to spread more of itself too. But what's truly remarkable is Jesus doesn't set up portraits and statues of himself. His presence in the dark world is made known because he fills the place with people who are filled with his light. You are his lights in the world, Paul says. His lights which throw off his grace. I know, I know it feels impossible that that could be the case. But if the living God can use a cross and a tomb to throw off his light of grace, you'll do just fine. He can use you just fine, according to verse 13. God is at work in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. 
You are His lights in the world in whom can be seen the effects of salvation. You are His lights in the world by whom others in darkness can navigate their way to Jesus. He calls others to Himself by showing His regeneration at work transforming you. The Gospel is, light doesn't conserve itself. It doesn't know how to. The Gospel is, Light doesn't know how to turn itself down. The gospel is, light can only burn as brightly as it's able. The light of the cross and the resurrection, the light of election followed by humility, the light of the presence and fruit of the Spirit of Jesus growing within you, the light of painful pruning with sweet growth that follows, the light of forgiveness and reconciliation, the light of wisdom replacing folly, the light of maturity replacing immaturity, the light of strong words of truth spoken in love replacing dry self-serving words of flattery because of all of these things revealed brilliantly in Christ Jesus who shines in you These things can have no dimmer switch. They're to show as brilliantly in you too. And at least as far as the passage says it, they shine more blindingly in you so that it's hard to see anything else. When you are intensifying the light of Christ's gospel together, not separately, not individually... If a community has these things, if a congregation shares these things, it can't be artificial light, Paul is saying. Much, much harder to have these things all together, but much, much more joyful, much more convincing, far more alluring. That's Paul's point. Corporate light is unmistakable light. The light of Christ is weaker when we try to bear it alone. For ourselves only. It's a pale glimmer. But it's incandescent when we work out the salvation that He has worked in us. When we admit together in the language of verse 15 that we're part of the crooked and twisted generation too. We're as crooked and twisted as anybody. Maybe more. And with that repentance, the light burns brighter. When we stand in the way of one another's crooks and twists, even willing to be abused for it, but gentle and firm and unmoved just the same, and when we pull against one another's crooks and twists with the ministry of Jesus and not our own methods, loving one another in the love of Jesus, not some warped version of our own, when we pull them out until they're straight, the darkness slips and the light shows brighter. When our hearts reflexively go back to their knotted, gnarled, tangled forms, still we pull them straight again and the light of Jesus is unmistakable. When we stand in the way of destructive, darkening words, words of vengeance, and slander, and hatred, and accusations, 
words of curses that feel like daggers and clubs, and when we answer with baptismal speech, words of washing and cleansing, words of Jesus' righteousness, then the light of the gospel is so bright, you have to blink it away if that's even possible. When we link arms, and from the hope and mercy of the gospel, we stand against our own dangerous behaviors, our arrogant flirtations with sin, our selfish flauntings of our own sin, the light shines in us like an overexposure. And when we stand in the way of our childishness in marriage, when we stand in the way of our childishness in parenting, the light is like a suspended burst. When we throw our idols down together and we don't allow one another to bring them to the church and Christianize them, baptizing them, dressing them up, trying to pass them off as servants of Jesus when truly they are his hateful rivals. You can't believe how brightly the light burns then when we pour ourselves out, like Paul says at the end of the passage, to make ourselves and each other look more like Christ, when we give up trying to make ourselves look more like each other, when instead of fighting with one another, we fight for the gospel in one another. When we forgive instead of hating, when we lift guilt off from the backs of loved prodigals, when we take law away from the self-approving and the self-justifying, when our interaction with each other is through the purity of the cross and the recreation of the resurrection of Jesus, and it's not from our infatuations with one another, it doesn't stem from our petty crushes on one another, then living in the church is like living in a wash of light. And he'll draw others to his light. It's his beauty. And he'll pull others into it. He'll pull our own rebellious, brazen, adulterous, runaway hearts. He'll pull the hearts of resistant, disinterested, presumptuous covenant children. He'll pull the heart of the pew sitter apathetic, hibernating, napping, comatose. He'll pull the heart of the nominal Christian in name only, the licentious Christian. I'm saved so anything goes. I can explain it away later. He'll pull the heart of the hardened rejecter and the wrestling skeptic and people from our generation who have been made tired and weary of getting lost in their own twists and tangles. Jesus knows how to draw us to his beauty, to make us jealous for it, captivated by it, insistent upon it, desperate for it. Jesus draws us to his beauty even as he's giving it off through us. My brother was remembering for me a story of being on a long backpacking trip one summer. 
The group had hiked all day long on the trail, and when they lost the trail in the falling dark of the evening, they followed the river, and finally, very late at night, they settled to camp in a clearing at the river's edge. In the north woods, the later you make camp, the darker it can get. And there was no way to see at the hour they stopped. By this point on the trip, their flashlights and headlamps were useless. The batteries were run down. The bulbs barely glowed when they turned them on. But on this night, there was a meteor shower. Falling stars would hit the atmosphere and flame out in long, slow burns. And they would light up the forest underneath. And that's how the group made camp. They would wait between flashes. And when there was a flare, they would unpack and work and build and set camp. In the dark, they stopped and remained still. But in the bursts of light, they would move. And eventually, they were able to gather enough wood to build fires and light them. And that's the way the gospel works. Flashes and flares at first then long burning fires, well-fueled fires. Because light is necessary. And darkness, the darkness out there, the darkness in here, the darkness within each of us, darkness is the enemy. And light is Christ's nature, and it's his to give. And light must always have more of itself. And it must have more of you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> now, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would break the darkness that lives within us and give to us instead life by your light, pure and clean and warm and bright. Light is your nature and it's yours to give and darkness is the enemy and light is necessary. If light must have more of itself always, then let your light of truth and love and grace and peace have all of us. And let us shine and burn with it then. Give to us light for our burdened and heavy hearts one more time as we eat and drink the love and the strength and the righteousness of Jesus in bread and wine. We feast all week on filth. Then we get to come together and be emptied out by your gospel and refilled. And we ask for grace and more grace and light and more light. May the bread be sweet to our hearts, and the wine even sweeter, as Jesus shines in and through us. And now, church, what is it that you say you believe with the church in every age? I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, 
suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.